Hi, everyone. Welcome to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I'm Alicia Halliday, and I missed y'all last week. I was traveling to Los Angeles to participate in an autism event. Next week's podcast will be the 2022 Summary of Research, so you can look forward to that. This week, though, I want to talk about a new paper that I co-authored, which talks about what we term the semantic toolbox. The semantic toolbox, as we see it, is a list of words that people can use to describe themselves or someone else with a condition. And of course, in this condition, it's autism. Some people say we need to switch our entire vocabulary and stop using words that some people consider to be demeaning. Now, other people may not consider them to be demeaning. Some people may prefer those words. This is an area of controversy and contention, so I don't expect anything less than the article itself to cause some back and forth on social media. I'm not just okay with the feedback. I'm listening to all of it, good and bad. So if you're making comments, I'm reading them. The article is open access, and I'm going to put a link to it in the podcast summary. It's somewhat of a response to a few articles that were published recently providing alternative suggested language for researchers to use instead of deficit-based, impairment, words like comorbid, severe, and using functioning labels and disorders. Now, there's been a movement to not use those words at all. Now, many, but again, not all people with autism don't identify with autism as being an impairment. They identify with it as being a way of being. Rather than call it autism, many autistics identify with something named neurodiverse or neurodivergent rather than identifying with having an autism spectrum disorder. And that's okay. But there are some people that don't see it that way at all, and I'm talking about people with autism themselves. One of the papers I'm talking about in pediatrics, which is the Journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I'll get to why that may be problematic a little bit later. Pediatricians, of course, are the first healthcare providers that would be the first line of consultation as a parent if you are concerned about anything, your child not speaking, not walking, hell, if if you thought they had the flu. So the title, although included the word suggestion, it was not the way the community interpreted it. Some but all members of the autism community considered it a mandate. And when scientists or parents or educators or even doctors have been using these words, they quickly get shot down, berated, and bullied. And because parents bring their children to a pediatrician to get help, to get referral for services, to get an acceptance of their own concern so that their child can have somewhat of a a known identity of who they are and what they are as they grow up, I think it's probably the wrong message to be sending to pediatricians to tell them not to worry. It's just a way of being. So when I say berated and bullied, what do I mean? Well, these responses have ranged in the mess that is Twitter, and believe me, even I know my days for Twitter are limited anyway, to shouting at researchers in meetings, to intimidating researchers so much that they have considered leaving the field altogether if they haven't already. Now, I know the reaction to this is that the community prefers this identity-based approach, and if people don't align with their identity approach, it's goodbye and good riddance. They shouldn't be an autism researcher and they shouldn't be someone that's helping the autism community. 
But honestly, this is really not how the community could be should be engaging each other. And it's really not healthy to both retaining good scientists and to developing good relationships with clinicians and care providers. So a group of us, including Allison Singer, Amy Lutz, Jill Escher, and I, became concerned enough about this that we wrote and submitted a commentary to Autism Research. I want to let you know, for those of you who are angry that Autism Research accepted this commentary, that it was thoroughly scrutinized several times by four different outside reviewers. It was written and rewritten a couple of times. Many comments on Twitter revolved around the disgust that my co-authors and I disclosed that we in fact are not on the spectrum but have children who are diagnosed. But I'm not sure, so sure why that's offensive. I hear about lack of disclosure being an issue. That's why we disclosed, to be completely transparent. We didn't have to do this. The goal of the com- commentary was not to discuss the neurodiversity movement, although that's the way it's been interpreted, or say that every single word is okay to use all the time. Clearly, there are bad words out there. There is one word starting with R, which used to be slang when I was growing up, and now I realize it's completely demeaning. But I wanted to point out that not all words are bad. The word deficit is not inherently bad. The word behavior is not bad. The word risk is not altogether bad. It depends on context. I've been personal witness to attacks when the word risk is used. Hell, I've been targeted for use of that word. But imagine being at a scientific meeting and having the words relative risk on your poster. Now, relative risk is a statistical term. Imagine saying relative risk of mortality and getting attacked because risk was used. Now, context matters. Context matters on how the word is used and context matters on why the word was used. The papers that are out there were being used as weapons to completely eliminate words like psychopathology. Sometimes that word is appropriate. Schizophrenia and manic depression that cause loss of jobs, families, children, and violent behaviors that result in injury or death are psychopathologies, and we should not be afraid to use those words in the right context. You can read the paper to understand the use of the word comorbid. Comorbid is a medical term, and yes, I said medical. Some people do not want medical terms to be used. But in the case of comorbid, it describes a chronic condition with a shared etiology, so it may be scientifically accurate. More so that co-occurring, which just means that two conditions occur at the same time. Scientists know that in some rare genetic mutations, autism can be comorbid with heart problems. And yes, that's another bad word, dysfunction. People with autism have heart dysfunctions, which can cause death, and they can also have dysfunctions of the GI system, which leads to constipation so severe it's life-threatening. So can seizures and epilepsies be comorbid? They are deadly. They are caused by dysfunctions in the way the brain is wired. Now, critics can come back and say these conditions are not core autism symptoms, that the words that were in those papers, the words that people are supposed to replace with other words, refer to not autism, but to associated conditions with autism. So there's a problem with that too. People with autism do suffer, period. People with autism who have seizures and GI dysfunctions suffer. If you're one of the lucky ones with autism that do not experience comorbid medical issues, consider yourself lucky because many people do, up to 90%. 
so bad that they require complex medical interventions that doctors don't know how to deal with. The community is demanding, and rightly so, that these conditions receive attention. We call for more funding in these conditions in people with autism and specialized interventions and diagnoses. So yes, they're a problem, and yes, they're a priority for the community. Also, it's not clear in some of these papers that the words can only be used in certain instances. If that was clear, there would not be backlash about using words like severe when it came to these medical issues. Some members of the community just don't want these words to be used only when it comes to referring to autism itself, but that was not clear. And also, people do suffer from their autism. If you don't, you don't. Autism is defined by symptoms causing clinical impairments in areas of functioning. If you don't feel you have an impairment, then that's great. But there are those people who desperately want help for themselves or their family member, not just for a comorbid medical condition, but to communicate, express themselves, and stop sensory hyperactivity that is debilitating. And again, this sensory hyperactivity is a core autism symptom. They want to stop highly restricted and repetitive behaviors like self-injury. And while one person may not see things like circling and self-injury as a problem, other people do. I also want to add something about the need to have inclusive language. Well, no, two things. My daughter is doing well. She's in a mainstream classroom. She's totally delightful. But it does her no good when she tries to get services to use language that does not convey her needs. I know others of you know this, and the ultimate goal is to actually balance language based on specific deficits and needs with those based on strengths. But pretending that those deficits and needs do not exist, that's not a solution. That's the unintentional consequences of limiting words to describe autism. They may limit the potential supports, services, and lines of research that benefit so many, even if you don't agree with all of it. There's also the issue where in cultures and countries where the only way to obtain a glimmer of support and services is to show need. If we eliminate words to describe those needs, like impairments and dysfunctions, we're limiting opportunities across the world for people to receive those services. I've heard that this is not a zero-sum game, and I completely agree. The goal is not to pathologize everyone. The goal is to ensure that people get the diverse set of services, supports, and basic understanding of their needs across the spectrum. I realize that's no easy feat. So, of course, be respectful. Ask what terms someone prefers. You can't go wrong by respecting personal wishes. You may also be talking to a wider audience and have different preferences of terms in that audience. Try to explain why you're using the terms you are using. The term may be dependent on what you're talking about. Some things are interventions, others are supports. If you're communicating to someone else, maybe explain why you're using person-first language rather than identity-first language or vice versa. Some people prefer person-first and some people don't care. But all voices matter, even the ones that see autism as something that needs support rather than just part of the normal human condition. We all need to give each other grace, stop bullying each other on social media, yelling at each other at meetings, and understand that above all, beyond what we agree are bad words, most words are not bad. How they are used can be bad. 
I also want to acknowledge that I'm leaving the wider neurodiversity movement out of this. I said that earlier because the paper also did. We were asked but declined to make a comment about neurodiversity in our paper. That was never our intention and our wish. We wanted this to provide an alternative viewpoint that we either experience ourselves or hear from families about the realities around language. Some people do not want things minimized. People are out there suffering and we cannot ignore them. But I get the other side too. Language has the history of causing stigma, but stigma is something we need to fight as a community, not be fractured and worse yet, demean or shut down those that use language that may or may not be relevant to individual situations. It's important for scientists, parents, the community, educators, doctors, to be able to use scientifically accurate words. And for many, they do include the word impairment. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next week.